Hi, this is John Hall. And this is Kathy Emmons. And we're from 101.5 Ward FM. And you've just fallen into the Theology, Theology Pit. Pit. Well, hey there, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, not like a bottomless pit. But you know what they say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of starvation. Actually, I've actually been corrected on that. You do not die of starvation when you fall into a bottomless pit. You die of dehydration because you will dehydrate before you starve to death. But here in the theology pit, this is a theological pit. So uh, you're not going to starve because it is a pit of knowledge. You are just going to be fed from it. I'm your host, Samson Kovach. Welcome to another edition of this new revised theology pit that I'm doing, uh, the new way that I'm going about um, kind of tackling these issues and looking at things, and the feedback's been fantastic. Thank you for that. I'm also doing smaller theology pits, hopefully you're aware of that, called uh, the Pit of Conception, where we just talk about different concepts in the Christian church and in theology and tackle them in like a five-minute uh you know, just like a little five minute snippet so you can just get it real quick. Cause I understand listening to something that's an hour or an hour and a half long, uh, that can get kind of tiring after a while. It really can. And because it can get so tiring, um, I wanted to have something for people to just kind of take along their day, you know, put in your playlist that, you know, just all of a sudden, maybe in between songs, maybe, I don't know how, you know, exactly you would work it on whatever device you're listening to, but it would just kind of come in there and you would have five minutes of quick theology and a quick theological lesson. So what I'm trying to accomplish here in the theology pit is to help uh, fully uh, educate Christians on uh, the historic Christian faith and all that entails. And that's a very big challenge. It's, it's, a, it's a mountain of things. I mean, it is just a very daunting task because when you talk about Christianity, well, who's Christianity? Which denomination's Christianity? I mean, some Christian churches and some uh, members of that church, uh, their history goes back as far as the foundation of their church physically, you know, and that's about it. Not just Christians, not just believers, but also unbelievers. They may have grown up in the Christian church and then have rejected it later on. Uh, but what they rejected might not have been the historical teaching. It might actually not have been the gospel because they never really heard it or never understood it or never had it explained to them. And sometimes like we talked about last time, people just have faith in faith and that's all they were told to do. Well, just have faith as though it's a blind faith and you are just to believe and that's it. So I want to make this a place where unbelievers can pose questions and get like real answers from a historic Christian background. Uh, so that's really kind of the mission statement of the, uh, the theology pit as a whole and of this, uh, of this ministry. Now, this is going to be uh, part two in the series we're doing on salvation, the history of salvation, those sort of things. Um, uh, the key points that I want to point out from the last podcast that we're going to be moving forward with um, is on salvation, and it was on justification. And the justification, it just kind of the, the action of it, that is all God. And by defining it like that, I think that I can get on board historically with the church, or rather the church can historically get on board with me in the way that I'm defining that. Because I don't think that through all of history and through whatever 
faith denomination you're a part of, whatever uh, order of salvation your church subscribes to or ascribes to, you would feel comfortable saying that it is by God alone and it's only by Christ alone that these things are possible, whatever that may be and however it is applied. But what I was doing is separating the Reformed understanding of justification from sanctification. And historically, that had not always been the case. But I wanted to take you through why, as kind of like a flyover, that that separation occurred. But today, we're going to be taking a step back in time. And we're going to go back to the time of the apostles, the time of their disciples, and the time of their disciples' disciples. And we're going to look back and say, would they, in a way, recognize what I laid out in the last podcast as the way we're saved? Um, I, I, w- I would like to make the argument that they probably would not. Um, they, they, they might not agree with me. They, they might agree with me. They might agree with parts of what I said, but they would probably be uncomfortable with the articulation that I gave. And that's reasonable. That's understandable. As... The church has grown over the years. We had a progressive revelation that was given through scripture with the Bible, you know, being written over a 1500 year period on three different continents by over 40 different authors in three different languages. Um, you, you can see that there was a progression that took place. And then once that ended, there became a understanding of, you know, progressive understanding, I suppose, where we had this revelation it came to the completion in Christ, and now we're kind of working through, well, what exactly does all of that mean? Remember when I said that, you know, sometimes people feel that salvation with themselves, their justification happened in a moment in time, and they spend the rest of their life trying to find out what happened at that moment. Uh, think of the life of the church. If the church is a, a personified, as a, you know, a person, they would do the same thing, and they would look back and say, okay, what happened? I mean, what, what just happened? How, how does this relate to us? How, how do we understand these things? And I think that what we'll see is that the nuggets of what I was talking about in the last podcast, the seeds of what I was talking about, you're going to see, you know, kind of planted here in what the early church fathers thought and, and what, how they viewed salvation. A lot of times you hear things from people when you're talking about the Bible and they say things like, well, that's just your interpretation. And, and what they're saying ultimately is you are just taking your preconceived notions of what you think the Bible ought to say and your experiences and your environment, and you're imposing that on the Bible and you're making it say what you want it to. And in one sense, they're right. Uh, saying that we are completely objective whenever we read the Bible, I think is an error. I don't think that we should be that uh, bold to say those things. Some people do. I, I try not to. I try not to be so arrogant as to say that I'm the one who has this completely figured out, especially when it comes to things like the application of the atonement and the, the full understanding of what God is doing in the, in the lives of the church. Um, I know you're saying, yeah, right. You come across as arrogant. I, I, I know. I'm, and I apologize for that. I always got points knocked off in my homiletics class for, for those, uh, sort of things for my, my speaking tone and the way I, I, you know, approach things. But, um, everybody 
throughout history, if you were to ask them, any, any culture, any generation of Christians, are you the ones that have it figured out? Every one of them is going to say yes. Every one of them is going to say, we finally got it right. And the reason why is because there were things that were going on in every generation, at every point in Christian life and in Christian history, uh, and in every part of the world that you know Christianity is, there are outside uh, things that are going on, uh, uh, whether it's with governments, with economies, with you know all sorts of things. And you have these outside pressures that are coming in, and it's making you understand the Bible differently. When that, that'll become uh, evidence whenever we look at things like eschatology, the study of the end times, and you know we look at you know small facts like you know whenever Napoleon Bonaparte was uh, you know politically more or less taking over uh, all of all of the world, uh, people were just saying, you know what, I think it might be possible that one person could actually control the world, and they would start reading the Book of Revelation differently from that point on, uh, from the early 1800s to to today, taking on what's called a, a futurist view. Um, not not saying, I mean, I'm not going to get into all that. Let's just let's just put a pin in that and save that for a later pit on um, the end times. And, uh, and, and the church also, this kind of go hand in hand. But um, we have these, well, not only these outside influences, but we also have inside influences too. Um, you, you might have, a lot of people see heresy as bad and as heretics as bad. And, and I mean, I'm not saying that it's good, but what I'm saying is that whenever you have these inside stresses from the church going on, these, let's let's call them heterodoxical viewpoints. These different views, um, these different beliefs, rather. This causes us to reflect on what we had said before and what we should say in the future, and what we should say about things now. So we might not be thinking of something until somebody comes along and makes a statement. And then we look at that statement and say, well, is this right or not? And we have to talk to other Christians. We have to talk to other people. We have to, you know, and, and we have to sit there and we have to debate it and we have to figure out, is this what God's word is saying? Because nobody's, nobody's thought about this. Either they didn't have time. There were other things that were going on. Um, a lot of times uh, back in, in, you know, back in the olden days, um, Information doesn't travel as fast as it does today. I mean, I'm, I'm doing this podcast on a Saturday and I'm probably going to upload it on a Saturday. And depending on when you refresh your accounts or when it gets to your feed, you're going to get this within a couple hours. Maybe, you know, as soon as I, I know with mine, I can put it, I can put this podcast in and I can uh, refresh my iTunes and it's there almost immediately, which means it's going out to the world hypothetically almost immediately. That's a lot faster for information to travel than what it was 2,000 years ago. So sometimes you would get people that would believe a view or hold on to a view for years before it's really talked about and before it's really dealt with. And sometimes, you, as we're going to see, there's, there would be a view that people may say that they hold to, but they're not as particular and precise about that view as the next person is. And we'll, we'll, we'll see that also in, you know, in, in what happens here. Um, so one of the big 
ideas that we have to look at is sin and death. And we talked about that. We talked about sin and death on the last podcast a little bit, and that's what Christ is saving us from. But when I was talking about that, and it kind of hit me listening back to the podcast and talking with my wife, talking with other people, the concepts that I was talking about and the way that God was going about fixing things, the emphasis that I was putting on it was outside of us, uh, Latin extra nos. It was outside of us. It was nothing that we could do. So therefore it made it feel like we have no responsibility. And I don't, I don't want that to completely come across as though we have no responsibility, but at the same time, I want it to come across that we don't save ourselves. So it's, there, there's a little bit of tension there. I understand. And as this goes on, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. We'll probably get into that more in the, in the, uh, next, um, edition of the theology pit. But right now we have to talk about, you know, what exactly we see as our problem. Is it outside of us? You know, the sin and death, something that we can't control, something that, you know, is kind of abstract in a sense. Or is it more than that? Does the atonement mean more than that? Is it, is, you know, is it different? And, and why do we feel that way? Why do we feel that it's so outside of us? Now, in the Gospels, um, Christ is referred to as the great physician many, many times. He does a lot of uh, healing miracles. Um, healing the blind, healing lepers, healing of uh, the sick, healing of people who you know can't walk, like those sort of things. And when you see that, you start to get this understanding that there is a physical aspect to what he is doing, uh, not just in the healings, but maybe in our salvation as a whole. And so... I kind of wanted to start out with a little bit of an illustration here. I mean, I say start out, it's been almost 16 minutes that I've been talking here and I'm just starting to get into, you know, what, uh, you know, the topic at hand and what I want to, what I want to discuss. But, um, I recently went to the doctors a couple months ago and I got a clean bill of health from him and, you know, I had to go get blood work done. And a few days after I got the blood work done, I was kind of excited to hear my, you know, see my results because I had recently lost some weight. Uh, I was exercising more. I was eating better. I was staying on a very, uh, very tight diet. Um, I was, I was enjoying it. I, you know, I felt really good. And I get a call a few days later uh, about my blood work, and they said that it looked like there might be a problem with my kidneys. And they said, it, but it's, it's possible that it's just dehydration that I'm not getting enough fluids. Uh, and you know, it, it could be just one or the other. And they said it is more than likely it's dehydration, but they might want to check it out again, uh, later on. So, you know, I'm like, Oh, okay. But here's the problem is that I went to the doctor for my checkup and I felt great. I felt fantastic. Um, but the doctor could see something that I couldn't, he was able to look at me and say, you know what? It doesn't matter how you feel about this. It matters what's actually wrong with you. Now, the interesting thing about this, see, I didn't think that I had a problem. He could see that I, I may have a problem. But um, my doctor is also, my, my general practitioner, my doctor is also uh, my elder at my church. He's an elder at my church. And um, so in a way, he cares for me both physically and spiritually. Now, if he knows as an elder spiritually what 
people need, and he knows as a doctor physically what you know what people need. Puts him in an interesting perspective. Puts him in an interesting position because if we don't know what's wrong with us, then we don't know what needs to be fixed. If he was to come to me and say, listen, you know, you may be dehydrated and what you need to do is you need to study the Bible more. Well, okay. Um, as a Christian studying the Bible is not bad. It's good, but you know, and it's not that I don't want to study the Bible. It's not that I'm resisting it. I'm not going to say to him, no, that's ridiculous. What are you talking about? But in this situation, how does this sort of thing dovetail with what he's telling me my problem is? Wouldn't I need to drink more Gatorade or drink more water? Maybe some more fruits? Uh, I don't know, watermelon, something. Um, Well, when we look at what we need for salvation, sometimes we get stuck in this pattern of my environment and my church and my focus at the time, my culture is here. And this is where I need things taken care of. And so let's impose that now onto the church. Let's impose that onto the work of Christ. Let's impose that onto our salvation. So sin and death, sin and death. How does this help me now? Um, we're going to get into the early church here now and their understanding of what's going on. And I want to give a little bit of background before we actually start getting to what they put forth that we need. Um, when I say early church, I'm talking around the years between like, like 80 and um, 200, maybe 300 AD. Like you could, I mean, we could expand that more or less. However, you would want to think of what constitutes the early church. Um, you can go back to you know, 30, 33 AD um, around that time and say, well, at Pentecost, that's the early church. And then however you want to break it up, but I'm just telling you the time period that what we're talking about, the application of the atonement, when it started being articulated and being solidified in a way is, is in this time period specifically. Okay. Now the understanding and consensus of the atonement was really, really slow at this time. Um, remember how I said in the last podcast that, Oh, if this was the big thing, if this is the, the crux of the gospel, pardon the, the pun there. If this is the crux of the gospel, if this is what the gospel hinges on, if this is the gospel message that we are justified by faith alone, then why aren't we aware of this? Why isn't this like a doctrine that's perfectly taught? You know, and, and I don't believe that there was perfect knowledge Im- imparted to the church. I believe that what the church has is what's necessary. And we are learning about this uh, going through time. But geographically, this is going to be slow. Um, getting information back and forth is generally going to be slow. Um, what we need to do is kind of think about when we say redemption, when we say salvation, we're talking about an atonement and, and an atonement for a fault or a mistake. Okay. Now it, another definition for it would be to make amends or reparations 
for an offense, as for an offense or a crime. What this does is this starts putting the onus on us. Okay, what it means, what it's implying is that we've made a mistake or a mistake has been attributed to us. And it's something that can be seen as criminal or something that has to be fixed. Okay. And, and, you know, sort of redone in a sense. Um, Something's got to be made right. Something went wrong and something now has to be made right. So the knowledge of what Christ has imparted to us is how people started looking at this atonement. Part of the reason is this. When we were discussing faith, the fides qua creditor and the fides qua creditor, fides qua was the faith that God gives us. It's the faith by which we believe. And the fides qua creditor is faith which we believe, the faith that we confess. This faith that we confess, we break it up into... Uh, three parts, usually. I know what you're saying. Does everything get broken up into three parts? Does everything get broken up in all these different parts? Why can't it just be this one thing? I don't know. That would be a lot easier, but it's not. So the definition of faith that the Bible uses and that Christians use comes in three parts. And the three parts are the notitia, ascensus, and fiducia, which means the notitia is the knowledge. Okay, We have to know about something. The census is our assenting to it, our agreeing to it. And the fiducia is our trust in it. So we have to know about it. We have to agree with it or assent to it. And we have to trust it. And that makes faith. So this faith is active in this sense. This faith is testable in this sense. It is not a blind faith. It is not, well, you just need to amorphically believe and everything is great. It's not that. Blind faith is unbiblical. Usually the the faith definition that you find in like Webster's Dictionary or something is, is an idea of faith. With completely without any evidence, without anything, um, it's just something that you believe for the sake of belief. It's belief and belief. That is the antithesis of what faith is for Christians and faith for the Bible. God never asked for that faith. He never asked for blind faith. He gives his own apologetic in there in a way and, and says, you know, you want to go after these other gods? Why don't you have them say something and bring it to pass? I've said things and I've brought them to pass. Test me. I've, I've done these things. Look at what I have done. So when we talk about faith, the first part of it is this knowledge. It's knowledge that God has given us, and we have to know something about it. Now, if you zero in on that aspect of the faith, that this, this knowledge, well, what is this knowledge? What's the knowledge of the gospel? And it's this new knowledge that Christ has given us, okay, about his life, about what he has done, about what the kingdom of heaven is like, the way we should behave, the way we should act, these, this fresh life that he has given us. We see that all through the New Testament, you know, um, that y- you are to, you know, behave in a certain way. You're, you, you know, help strangers, help your neighbor, you know, be nice, these type of things. And he's giving us this, this knowledge of this immortality that we possess. In him, in Christ, we are immortal. We are going to live forever. Now, there are Gnostic tendencies also with this. Um, uh, Gnosis means knowledge. Uh, Gnostic 
is, uh, is think of it like shorthand for someone who's a Gnostic, someone who has knowledge. If you put an A in front of it, the letter A, the letter A negates things. So a, if you put A in front of Gnostic, you get agnostic, and that's someone without knowledge. Um, someone who believes in the concept of God is theist, and somebody who does not believe in a God is atheist. Um, so hopefully you can see how that works. When we talk about Gnostic and we talk about agnostic, agnostic say, I don't know. Gnostic say, I do know. And in this way, you kind of have to know. Now, who and what the Gnostics were and what the Gnostics were talking about and where they were coming from and, and all these certain things. Gnosticism, more or less, and this is kind of a nutshell of what the Gnostics believed, but they believed that there was one good God who was pure spirit. And then from him, these other gods sort of emanated from him. Uh, they, they came at him. So you had a bunch of these lesser gods. And as these gods got further and further away, each emanation of the perfect God um, started getting more and more, let's just say, less good. Okay, Until you finally get to a type of evil God that then creates the physical world. Okay, And because he's evil, the physical world is evil. Now, Jesus had to be one of these earlier emanations of God, which is more good. And he came into the physical evil to show us through knowledge that we can be saved. Okay, so where a lot of this is coming from is from uh, Stoic philosophy. And I want to discuss a little bit of Platonic thought and Stoic philosophy to show what is kind of undergirding this Gnostic thought and, and where we're getting this, this, this idea. Because this is going to dovetail into the way the New Testament talks about some things and the way the New Testament deals with some things. So I, I, right now we're going to discuss uh, Stoic philosophy. Out of Paul Tillich's book, A History of Christian Thought, I'm going to read some excerpts on what he has to say about, um, about the Stoics and about their philosophy and what's going on. Um, the Stoic tradition, the Stoic idea of the courage to take fate and death upon oneself. Okay. A lot of personal responsibility here. Okay. The first, this is like the first doctrine of the word logos. Now, if you know what the word logos means in, in Greek, it's spelled L-O-G-O-S. We sometimes people pronounce it logos, but the logos was this concept of a, uh, a universal reality. Okay. It was this concept of a, 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 a emanation from the true God that was so pure and so perfect. It was a divine emanation. And uh, logos is translated a lot of times word. And so in the, in the gospel of John, when it says the word was with God and the word was God, the word is logos that's being used. And it's kind of pulling from this um, stoic, understanding, but redefining it. But we have to understand the, what, what the Stoics were saying. Um, so philosophically, uh, logos was the law which determines the movements of all reality. Okay. So there is a type of determinalism that's going on here. For the Stoics, the logos was the divine power, which is present in everything that exists. Um, think of, you know, Star Wars, 
with the, uh, the I want to say the midi chlorides. I hope that I get that right. I, you know what? I think that people are going to send me email, uh, more email based on that if I didn't get that right than if I don't get anything else right in this entire podcast here. Okay. So, you know, the, the first law is, is of nature, okay? It's the divine seed, the creative divine power, which makes anything what it is. So the logos is the, the creative force here in Stoic philosophy. And it's the creative power of movement of all things. But secondly, it's also the moral law. So it's the law which is innate in every human being when he accepts himself as a personality with the dignity and greatness of a person, which starts to exclude um, small children, uh, the mentally infirmed, anyone like that. Thirdly, uh, logos also means man's ability to recognize reality and theoretical reason, okay? Because man has the logos in himself, he can discover it in nature and history. And it follows for uh, stoicism that the man who is determined by the natural law, the logos, is the logic, the logikos. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's, it's written in English letters, but um, it, it looks to be a, a Greek word. Or uh, this logikos is also called the wise man, okay? So they did not believe that everybody was a wise man, but perhaps there were only a few who have ever reached this ideal, All others were either fools or stood somewhere between the wise and the foolish. So Stoicism held a basic pessimism about the majority of human beings, that mostly everybody was idiots except for the smart people like us. I don't think that's just the Stoics. I think that's just human nature. A lot of people feel like that. I mean, Homer Simpson says that everybody's stupid but me. Um. So the Stoics had this concept of foolishness. Salvation in Stoicism is a salvation through reaching wisdom, okay? Um, Whereas in Christianity, we hold that salvation is brought about by divine grace. But again, the Christianity that we're talking about, it's in the first few centuries here. This is the the predominant uh, philosophical thought of the day and of what... Um, of, of, of how the world behaves on their, their understanding of truth, their epistemology. And because of this, you have groups that came out um, very early on in uh, Christianity, considering themselves Christian. Uh, and at this time, what it meant to be a Christian a lot of times was um, holding to certain creeds, um, believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Um, these are things in, in the book of Acts, uh, 42 times it calls us believers or ones who believe. And that's what defined you as a Christian. It was what you believe mostly about Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Um, but if you read in the Gospel of John and you look at you know, John kind of dealing with this, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. What he's doing is he is saying that Jesus as the word was not a divine emanation. He was not a lesser God in this way. He 
is God himself. The bookends of the gospel and John uh, of John start out in, in its literature. You have this type of bookend and it, it says the same thing at the beginning as it does at the end. And then the middle is just kind of proving what, what he's saying. And what he's doing is in the beginning, and even using that term in the beginning was the word. He's kind of harking back to Genesis. He's trying to bring up that, you know, in the beginning, God said, so he, he's saying that, that, you know, he's tying this all together and he's saying that, you know, Jesus is God. He is Yahweh. He is the one God. There is only one God. And at the end of his gospel, we have Thomas calling Jesus, uh, my Lord and my God. Um, and so, there's, and, and I think there's seven, um, proves that he gives seven miracles that he gives in there and Jesus calling himself God in, in different ways in John's gospel. But that's the whole point of, of John's gospel and, and what he is saying at that time. So he's dealing with the stoic understanding of logos and, and this word and saying, I I'm, I'm using this word that means word, but it's, it's full of these certain connotations in our culture that have this divine meaning to it, this, this power to it, this sort of thing. And I'm personifying it. And I am saying that it's that and so much more because it is Jesus who is God himself. The word was with God and the word was God. And without, and he goes on to say, you know, without uh, nothing would have been made. So you can see whenever you read the gospel of John with this understanding of stoic philosophy and what they meant by logos and what they meant by word, um, how he is dealing with that at the time. That's the culture at the time. And that's what's going on. Um, now you had these, um, these people that would want to argue these things. I mean, they have this Gnostic understanding mixed with the stoic philosophy and these different emanations. And this is predominant at that time because in first Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, starting in verse four, that, um, well, I should, I should go back. Uh, let me go back to verse three. Uh, as I urged you when I was leaving for Macedonia, stay on in Ephesus to instruct certain people not to spread false teachings, nor to occupy themselves with myths and incarnations and Sorry, I'm trying to read this from afar. Let me pull it up a little bit closer so I can I can actually read this to you. Um, uh, nor occupy themselves with myths and intermediable genealogies. Such things promote useless speculations rather than God's redemptive plan that operates by faith. Because they were sitting around saying things like, well, you have God and, you know, this evil God that created the world and then Jesus came. So he must have been the emanation such and such from this emanation of God that then was able to come. And they would argue about these so-called genealogies, these things. And, you know, Paul's trying to deal with that right off the bat saying, no, this, this Gnostic understanding, um, it, it doesn't work out. Uh, in that sense, but Gnostics also held that everything physical is evil. Everything spiritual is good. Okay. And because of that, you had these people that came out and they called themselves the Docetists. Now Docetists, um, come from the Greek word, uh, dakeo, which means to seem or to appear. And they would say things like, well, Jesus only seemed to be human. He wasn't really human because we know this because, Nothing physical can be that good. 
nothing physical can be that that pure and that godlike. So he just seemed to be human. He just appeared to be human. Even after his, you know, resurrection, he just appeared to be human. He just seemed to, you know, do those things. And that's what the DOS test would hold to, but that was starting to come up um, later on because John was uh, was fighting against that um, type of, of doctrine also. Okay. But before I jump ahead to what he was doing and what he was fighting about and what, you know, he was arguing with them about when it came to this understanding of, well, he just seemed to be a human being, but he wasn't really a, a human being. Um, I want to talk about kind of the, the disciples of the disciples, because I can go back to the Bible and I can talk to you a lot about that, but I want to kind of move us forward a little, little quicker here into who we're going to be discussing. And two people who were John's uh, disciples was St. Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp, Polycarp of Smyrna. And if you remember from the book of Revelation, one of the seven churches that that book was written to was the uh, church of Smyrna, and that was Polycarp's church. He was the bishop of that church. Now, they were both these disciples of the disciple John, who was the apostle of Christ. And they would say that um, union with Christ is the important thing, okay? That he is in us. And because he is in us, that we become his temple. And this is a sanative understanding of justification that something is poured into that sanitizes you and cleanses you. And he also, they also um, would write back and forth to each other in their letters. And um, Ignatius one time wrote to Polycarp and said, beware of these people, these, these false teachers that are coming to you. Um, they deny prayer, they deny the gathering of, of the saints together, and they deny the Eucharist, they deny communion to be the body and blood of Christ. And that was very important. And when we get into the satisfaction view of the atonement and we look at the sacramental system, we're going to look at why it actually being the body and blood of Christ is so important um, within that, um, that uh, salvific plan, that salvific understanding. So what they would say is that these guys would say, look, we're, we're dwelling on the Lord's passion. Okay. The passion is the time period from when he was taken prisoner in the garden and then he was um, crucified. So everything that happened in there is, is called the passion. Um, Mel Gibson's movie, Passion of the Christ. Um, a lot of people said, well, why didn't he keep it going and show and deal more with the resurrection and afterward? Well, because that's not what the passion was. That's the resurrection. So the passion is just on that behalf, on, on the death and the resurrection. Um, th they would affirm that he suffered for us. And that's the whole point of the passion, that what he was going through was suffering for all of mankind. Um, by his stripes, we are healed. And that he died and he rose on our behalf. So the disciples of the disciples, um, especially John, they were under this impression of what Christ did for us. That is what 
um, it, it, we have to think about. That's what we have to know and what we have to understand and what we have to hold to. And if you were to ask them, well, how does that then get applied to me? I don't know if they would be able to tell you. Um, they weren't really thinking of that. Um, they were just kind of saying, this is what we were told. This is what we were taught. And these are the important things that you must know. And it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That that is the central thing that you have to hold to. Uh, Clement would say that um, his blood had to be shed because his blood was for our blood. His flesh was for our flesh. His soul was for our soul. And all of these things he had to take on and he had to be and he had to physically possess in order for him to uh, restore us because we are being restored to life through the blood of God, not through the blood of man. They had this understanding that Jesus Christ is God. If you were to ask them, well, what do you mean that he is God? More than likely, they would say he's the son of God. And when we get into Christology later on and we look at terms like son of man and son of God and, and, and what those mean, what's, what, um, what the connotations are in, uh, in, in those uh, statements and, and all of the weight that that holds, that's going to make a big difference. But they would just say that he's, he's the Christ, the son of the living God. He is the son of God, implying that if you are the son of something, you are that thing also. So he can rightly say and, and easily say that we're restored to life through the blood of God. Now, the main points that Ignatius and Polycarp and Clement uh, are trying to make here is that what Christ did, it abolished sin and death by taking on human form. Okay, so this is kind of railing against the, uh, the, the docetists. In, 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 in what's going on, they, you know, are coming up and saying, you know, again, that Jesus only appeared to be human. He wasn't really human. And these guys who are John's disciples are saying, no, he actually is human. And we know this because John not only spoke about this specifically, his physicality in his gospel, he says, feel, feel me, you know, my hands, I am a flesh and bone. Uh, I, you know, give and, and I, you know, you can see that they may have still been having trouble with this. He's like, look, give me a piece of fish to eat. And he gave him some broiled fish and he ate it in their presence. He was showing them not only that he was, was physical, but John is emphasizing this in his gospel because people at the time, could say, well, he only appeared to be, and they probably were. And John's gospel was uh, one of the later, the, the later gospel to be written. So he is seeing this come about and he's, he's putting that emphasis in his gospel. When you read through each gospel, they each have a different emphasis of what they're doing. And this seems to be what, what John's was. Now, John really, you know, started tackling a lot of this stuff, um, with uh, his his book on you know, First John that he wrote, his letter First John. So let me read some of that to you and listen with this understanding of Gnosticism and Docetism in your in your mind that Jesus only appeared 
to be human, but he couldn't have been physical and physical is bad. So just, just keep that in mind and let me read you parts of, of this letter. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Okay, so first John starts out like this. This is what we proclaim to you. What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have looked at and our hands have touched concerning the word of life, and the life was revealed, and we have seen and testified and announced to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We too have seen and heard, we announce to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet keep on walking in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we do not bear the guilt of sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, forgiving us of our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus as the Christ who has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is already in the world. Now in verse 7, I want to kind of add this in a little bit just for our understanding later on when we start talking about the, uh, this, this atonement. Uh, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been fathered by God and knows God. The person who does not love does not know God because God is love. By this, the love of God is revealed in us that God has sent his one and only son into the world so that we may live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So when we talk about the Gnostics and the Docetists, they were already alive and well at the time of the New Testament. And because of the whole understanding of information and things being passed around, even today, you know, it it says that, you know, a lie can be all the way halfway around the world, around the world twice before the truth gets its boots on to go and chase after it. Um, You have these different ideas and, and different things going on. Um, the Gnostics and the Docetists are saying this stuff, which is very palatable of the time. It sounds good. It sounds like, um, you know, what, what, what the world is already thinking in a sense. It, it's, it's already working in that way. Let's, let's just say that it's feels like it fits. It feels like it's just right with the experiences that, that, you know, people are having, uh, with this. So, um, we come now to Justin Martyr. But again, the main point is that he came to abolish sin and death by taking on human form. That's kind of the whole 
point of what's going on. Um, Justin Martyr, uh, he was a philosopher at the time in the second century, early second century, and he um, was, according to his own accounts that I've that I've read in, in you know his his writings, is that. He was meditating by, I think, on a cliff by the seashore somewhere, and he was thinking about, you know, these things and um, the meaning of life, the you know, purpose of everything, that that sort of thing. And somebody came up to him, we don't know who, uh, a stranger who was a Christian, and started talking to him and started speaking the language of philosophy, and he was converted to Christianity. And so he started thinking about the atonement. And his impressions that he gives us are these, and, and you can understand as being someone who was trained as a philosopher, he had this Stoic understanding, Platonic thought, understanding of the Gnostics, um, the sense of the, the Docetus would, you know, make, make some sense to him. But he would say that the purpose of the incarnation was as a didactic understanding of redemption as enlightenment, which meant that um, didacting means you know, teaching here. Uh, so the purpose of the re- of the of the incarnation of Christ's life was to teach us in the way that that we should be, in the way that we should understand. And if you think back, you know, to what I just said about the the Lagos doctrine, there, it's that you know uh, this this emanation from God, this, this power from God, this logos, Jesus being the logos, being God in that way, he came to teach us and he was this great teacher. And we do rightly think that Jesus is a great teacher, but that's not all we think of him. But if you want to kind of wrap your mind around the, the, the nugget of what Justin Martyr would be saying is that his teaching, not only in what he said, but what he did is what we need to think about and what we need to live out and what we need to do. So he was a, this great teacher and that when God destroyed the principalities and the powers with Christ, um, this then gives us this ability to save ourselves in this way that we adhere to Christ's teachings, and we adhere to what he said. Um, we become uh, passable to his will, to God's will. Okay. Um, the crucifix shattered the might of the serpent, okay, who instigated Adam's transgression. Okay. And what he's saying here is that what Christ did was he came, and if you look at his life, he did everything Adam was supposed to do. And we we need to mimic that. Now, we're not going to be able to do it perfectly. It's impossible. That's why Christ came and did this. So Christ recapitulated what Adam was supposed to do. Okay. Now, this is called the recapitulation view of the atonement. Okay. Now, the definition of capitulate means to surrender unconditionally. Okay. Or on stipulated terms. Adam was under this stipulation with God. He was under this unconditionally, you know, surrendering unconditionally type thing to where Jesus then had to 
do the perfect things, live the perfect life. Okay. He had to recapitulate everything. He had to go back and do what Adam was incapable of doing, what Adam didn't do. Okay. In, in the garden, um, Adam was tempted with, with food. Uh, when Jesus goes into the desert for fasting for 40 days, he is tempted with food in the same way. If you remember, um, Satan appears to him and says to him, uh, why don't you take these rocks, make them in the bread. And, you know, there's nothing sinful about feeding yourself. Okay. And, and especially in a situation, but what, and, and there's reasons why Jesus doesn't do it. Not only just because it's Satan, but whenever we get into Christology, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but he, says, no, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he had to go through and they, and Justin Martyr was developing this understanding of the recapitulation view of the atonement that through every stage of man's existence, Jesus had to live at that stage in life. And he had to, by, by living every one of the stage, he's doing that for us. And that's getting credited to us. That's getting attributed to us in him. It's as though we are all doing all these things and being completely obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. Now, uh, St. Irenaeus of Leon, France, um, he attributes this uh, recapitulation view of the atonement to Justin Martyr. Okay. And in his writings, he's like, yeah, I'm grabbing onto this because not only is it the very physical understanding here, but it is a very, um, uh, fruitful teaching understanding. Now who is Irenaeus? Irenaeus is the disciple of Polycarp who was the disciple of John, who was the disciple of Jesus. Okay. So Irenaeus said that Adam had a process to go through and the devil messed it up and Jesus fixed it throughout his life. He's pretty much saying what Justin Martyr was saying and more along the lines of kind of hammering out for us what this understanding of the recapitulation of the atonement means. Okay. He would say that all of us, are, we were all seminally present in Adam. Okay. And he would get that and he would point towards Luke's genealogy because unlike Matthew's genealogy, which just goes back to David, Luke takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam. And Irenaeus would point to that and say, see, because it goes all the way back to Adam, what Luke is doing is showing that how Jesus going all the way back to Adam and his line is fixing everything for all those people in the past, all the way back to Adam and fixing it for Adam also. And he's fixed it all for us in the future as well. And he also would say things that like, we still struggle with this sin and death. This, this stuff is still going on because the devil still has rights over mankind. And, and it's, it's, it's present in I, what Irenaeus is saying, but it's not fully integrated into the recapitulation view. So at the same time you had the recapitulation view of the atonement springing up in, in, in the way that you're saved, you also had another one called the ransom to Satan view of the atonement. And the ransom to Satan view of the atonement is 
probably I would say better well known today. Um, it's it's a very good illustration that you can that you can give from the pulpit um, for this. Uh, it's very it's popular. If you've ever read the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or seen the movie, um, the rate in the ransom the rate the the ransom to Satan view of the atonement is. Um, done in that movie and in that book where Aslan the lion is killed on behalf of um, one of the children. And because it was not proper for someone who was completely innocent to die, death could not hold them. And so therefore um, this understanding that it comes from this, um, uh, doctrinal understanding that I don't, I don't think many people hold to many churches hold to officially. I don't think any of them do, but it's the ransom to Satan theory of the atonement. Um, and that Adam's sin was disobedience. And that's why Christ had to live through all these stages and even death because Adam died because of, of, you know, his disobedience. So Christ had to die also because of Adam's disobedience. And so he had to make everything right the whole way through. Now, the ransom to Satan view of the atonement, to kind of get a grasp on it here, is that whenever Adam sinned, the devil took control of mankind. And the illustration goes like this, okay, um, that there was a man who was walking down the street and he saw a young boy with a couple birds in an old rusty bird cage. And he said, hey, what do, you, what do you got there, son? And he says, well, I, I got these birds. Caught them out in the field, you know. And he was like, yeah, what are you going to do with them? He said, I don't know. Probably going to, you know, poke them and, you know, pick on them, make them fight each other, you know, those, those sort of things, make them, you know, do whatever. Yeah, and then what are you going to do? Well, then I'll just, you know, take them back out and kill them when I'm done playing with them. Like, there's nothing. He's like, son, how much do you want for those birds? I want to buy those birds from you. The boy says, these birds aren't worth anything. They're, they're just field birds. They're, they're nothing. And he says, how much do you want for them? The boy looks at the man, sizes him up. Take you know, 20 bucks. Or some ridiculous amount, you know, for just some worthless field birds. The man says, I'll, I'll do it here. Here's the money. And the guy, uh, you know, the little boy takes it and you know, runs off all happy. And the man takes the bird cage and takes it out to the field and opens it up and gently lets the birds out. And the story is then to illustrate this understanding of the ransom, the Satan view of the atonement, that this is what Christ did. Christ was walking down the street one day and saw Satan there and said to Satan, what do you got there? And he's like, well, I got mankind. I trapped him. Got him in this cage here. What are you going to do with them? He's like, I don't know. Yeah, mess with them, I guess. You know, poke them, pick on them, make them fight each other, make them cause wars, make all this stuff. Jesus says to Satan, well, uh, what are you going to do with them after that? He's like, yeah, kill them. They're worthless. Jesus says, um, let me buy them from you. How much you want? Satan says, Jesus, you don't want these people. These people are awful. They're, they're terrible. If you took them, they would lie to you, treat you like garbage, spit on you, do horrible things in your name. They would even kill you. And Jesus says, how much? Satan says, fine. I want all your tears and all your blood. Jesus says, let it be so. And he died on the cross for all of humanity to be freed from Satan. 
That's the ransom to Satan view of the atonement. Now, this is a view, and both these views are very, very problematic. But we come now to a man by the name of Tertullian, okay? And Tertullian was somebody who was a Traducian. Now, what a Traducian is, is somebody who believes that the constitution of man, what makes up man, there's, uh, everyone would say in, in this understanding that man has a material part and an immaterial part, a, a physical part and a, and a, a, a corporeal part and a non-corporeal part. Um, he would say that, that mankind is a body-soul unity. It's not that a human being has a body or has a soul or has a soul that's connected to it, but they're both body and soul. It's conditional unity. You get your soul from your parents in the same way you get your body from your parents. You get your uh, personality from the personality of your parents. Okay, so this is what a Traducian holds as opposed to somebody who is a... Um, uh, somebody would hold to like a, 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 a two dual per, the name, the words escaping me, words escaping me here. But if you held to man being, uh, uh two parts or three parts, dichotomist and trichotomist, that's what I'm thinking. Of. If you were a dichotomist, you would say that man has a body and a soul and a trichotomist would say that, you know, man has a body, a soul and a mind and how those, you know, it, it reacted with each other and reacted with God and integrated in certain things. But that's a humanity and sin understanding you know, uh, talk. It's a, it's a different theology pit. So Tertullian being a Traducian and being very well educated, he took a legal look at what, what was going on here. And he emphasized the necessity of the, the reparation for the offenses committed because we are just like Adam as the branches are just as much a part of the tree as the trunk of the tree is. So we're just like these offshoots of Adam, which means that it doesn't matter how far that branch is going out. That branch is still connected in every way. Even if it looks different, it's got leaves on it. It's connected exactly the same way, right to that trunk. It is the same thing. Okay. So he came up with this idea that if you do good deeds, okay, that's, that becomes, that's merit with God. Okay. But bad deeds, then that demanded satisfaction. Okay. Those bad deeds, there had to be a punishment for it. Something had to happen. Okay. Now with Christ being perfect and recapitulating everything right, he was doing all these good deeds the whole time. So he stored up innumerable merits in heaven and these merits were then able to be given to Christians on Christ's behalf in order to save them. Now, does that sound familiar? should sound familiar from the last podcast. It should sound familiar because these merits that were stored up are distributed by grace and are the grace of God that's distributed through the sacraments. And we get into that sacramental system that, that we talked about from there. And, it's important to see that, you know, this is second century, that these ideas that are going on, um, this is, you're starting to see these nuggets. You're starting to see the seeds of what eventually, you know, evolves and what eventually comes out in the church later on in the church's teaching. Okay. So it's very important to understand what Tertullian is saying in, uh, in, in this understanding. Tertullian also 
just a little bit more background on him, uh, is the one who coined the term. He's very good with words, and he coined the term Trinity in order for us to understand our, our triune God, one what three who's, one, one God in three consciousnesses or three persons or personalities. Okay. Now, Hippolytus or Hippolytus, I don't know which way you would pronounce it, held also to the recapitulation view of the atonement. Okay. And he said, he would say that, look, redemption is from knowledge of God. Okay. It's mediated by the word through nature and history. Okay. And it's the law and the prophets. And finally the gospel, all of it's coming together. And Jesus recapitulated all of that. He did everything. He, he, you know, did all this on our behalf to save us. You know, so he's adding to it also. Now, when you get one generation away from uh, Hippolytus or Hippolytus, um, you have um, Cyprian. And Cyprian would say that Christ suffered for our sins and healing our wounds and destroying death by his blood. And by doing that, we have been restored to life and our sins have been purged by his blood. So you can see how, as this is kind of moving and going along, these people who a lot of them were contemporaries, but they lived in different parts of the world. Um, they're getting these teachings from the different apostles in, you know, where they, where they came from. And they're sitting back and they're trying to formulate this. They're trying to explain to people how it is that Jesus has saved them, how it is that something that somebody did outside of us can have a direct relation to us today and to us physically. Now, a man by the name of Origen was from what we would call more of the Eastern Church. Okay, this was a lot of Western Church stuff. This is more Eastern Church. Now, this is a, at this time, I would say an unnatural divide. The real sharp divide between the East and the West doesn't come until 1054 AD. Um, But you're going to see the emphasis that the West Church, which is the Latin Church, think of the Roman Catholics and the Protestants, And you can understand where a lot of their ideas are developing here. The Eastern church has a little bit of a different grasp on the understanding of of doing theology and also, you know, what it's, you know, what it's kind of, it's meaning behind it is. Now, what Origen did is he looks at the book of Genesis as a cosmic myth, Okay. And I don't want to say that like, like negatively, he's not trying to be negative. He's saying that it's, it's a cosmic myth because of the, the whole original sin thing. Okay. That's, that's going, you know, that's going on. And, um, he would say that we have these bodies. Okay. And he holds to what's called a pre-existence theory. Now, what this is, is that, all of the souls that there ever will be have already been created and are in heaven. And uh, let's say by punishment, we are then put into these bodies and these bodies make us who we are. And these bodies in a way corrupt us. This means that each soul is a carbon copy of another soul. It has no identity. It has no personality. It has no behavior. There's no point to it. Okay. It's when it's inserted into the body that those sort of things develop. Okay. So there is no diversity and all of them had free will. Okay. Uh, Souls were free. So it rested on their own volition to advance by imitating God 
or to fall away by neglecting him. Okay. So again, Christ was this great teacher and we can get this understanding and, and he's kind of echoing Justin Martyr a little bit. And Justin Martyr, I would say he's more, you know, East coast, East side rather than West side. And, um, you know, he's sort of echoing that, you know, Jesus is the great teacher. It's much more of a didactic, uh, understanding that we have. I want to read to you from um, the book Early Christian Doctrines by J and D Kelly, and it's I, I think this sums up very nice. And if you know anything about um, other doctrines of other uh, faiths, th- some of this stuff might 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 catch your ear. Um, when when he's talking about the concept of the souls and of them being free, um, and and by you know, they're sinning and, and the way that they um, fall in place with God uh, is by their own volition here, that Jesus's soul was unique. Okay. He was the exception. And I'll, I'm going to pick it up here. It says, with the unique exception of Christ's preexistent soul, all these rational beings opted in varying degrees for the latter. The result was their fall which gave rise to the manifold of unequal gradations and spiritual of spiritual existence. Before the ages, he writes, they were all pure intelligences, whether demons or souls or angels. One of them, the devil, since he possessed free will, chose to resist God and God rejected him. All the other powers fell away with him, becoming demons, angels, and archangels, according to their misdeeds, were more according as their misdeeds were more or less or still less heinous. Each obtained a lot proportionate to his sin. There remained the souls. These had not sinned so grievously as to become demons or so venially as to become angels. Therefore, God made the present world, binding the soul to the body as punishment. He plainly chastises each to suit his sin, making one a demon, another a soul, and another an archangel. Now, this really rings of what the Mormons teach on the pre-existence theory. Mormons go a little bit further. I'm not going to get into Mormonism here and and what they hold to. But I kind of wanted to bring that out with um, J&D Kelly here. Now, What Origen would say post-resurrection is that Jesus's soul was fused with the Logos ineffably. Okay. Now what that means is that ineffably means that it's incapable of being expressed in words. It's undefinable. A secondary definition of it would be that it's not to be spoken because of the sacredness. So when you say, well, if Jesus had a unique soul, that was different from ours. How exactly could he recapitulate for Adam if it was, if it was different? And then how can he still even post-resurrection? And this gets into what's called apophatic theology. Apophatic theology is very mysterious theology. It's, it's theology of mystery. It can't really be explained. It's, it's a negative theology. It's a theology of explaining what is not to explain what is. Um, this is why they would use things like ineffability. You know, you wouldn't say that, um, you know, God is eternal because you don't know what eternality is. That might not even be the right word. That might not even be the right concept. So you just say he's beyond the ability to change. 
Um, you would you would just say things in more of a a negative way. And the Eastern churches still hold to this today for certain reasons. Some uh, are admirable, but I think that they take it a little bit too far. The other side is called cataphatic theology, and that is where they are trying to explain any, everything. This is much more Western, Roman Catholic, Protestants. And this is why um, when the Greeks look at the way that Roman Catholics and Protestants do theology and look at the way they behave, they say, you guys are just the same same coin, just two different sides, you know, and we would look at them and say, how can you even think that? Look at how different we are. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't see it. They're like, why you guys think about God the same way you do theology the same way. What's so different about you? Where a lot of Protestants look at the Greek Orthodox church and the Eastern churches and say, you guys are just Catholics without a Pope. They would look at it and say, how do you even consider us Roman Catholic? Like, that's crazy. We don't even think like them. But they have the, the sacraments, um, they have the concept of uh, sanative understanding of, uh, of justification, of uh, deification that we'll get into later, theosis, we'll, we'll discuss with them. But you can see how what Origen is talking about, and since he is of this Eastern side, the Eastern Church is kind of falling a little bit more in that direction, okay? And he would be holding out also on this ransom to Satan view of, of the atonement. Um, but he would say that um, the most frequent and characteristic thought is that Christ is a teacher who endows men with true knowledge, leading them to a love exempt from desires and a righteousness whose prime fruit is contemplation. He is their guide at the different levels of life. I'm reading from Jane D. Kelly's book, again, um, Early Christian Doctrines here. And um, he's also the teacher who's an all-healing physician of mankind who bestows immortality as well as knowledge. God's will, uh, he remarks, is the knowledge of God, and this is participation in immortality. So man is deified. The word became man so that you might learn from man how, many, how man may become God. As God Christ forgives our sins, while the function of his humanity is to serve as the model so as to prevent us from sinning further. Now, what's interesting about that, a lot of that stuff probably jumped out at you. What, what do you mean? That just sounds crazy, man, becoming God and like all stuff. This is the concept of uh, theosis, of, of deification. Uh, it's not that he becomes God as a triune God or who God is, but he becomes God-like. Um, and that Jesus is showing that way. Um, now, Clement's soteriology and Origen's uh, soteriology here are very steeped in what's called Christ mysticism, okay? Where the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the, the passion part of it, um, they really, it really doesn't play a redemptive part in mankind. Um, when you're looking at the recapitulation view of the atonement, this is where you start seeing the, the problems that were, um, coming, coming about, um, more origins thought he conceives of Jesus's human nature as having been progressively deified through its union with the logos after the resurrection, its materiality disappears and his human soul becomes fused ineffably with the logos. Okay. So the logos is our teacher, lawgiver and model by associating with him. We lose our deadness 
and irrationality becoming divinely possessed and rational. He is the pattern of the perfect life, the exemplar of true virtue, in whose likeness Christians are transformed, thereby being enabled to participate in the divine nature. Discoursing in bodily form and giving himself out as flesh, he summons to himself those who are flesh in order that he may first be first of all to transform them into the likeness of the word who has been made flesh and after that may exalt them as to behold him as he was before he became flesh. With Jesus, human nature and divine nature began to be woven together so that by fellowship with divinely human nature might become divine, not only in Jesus himself, but in all of those who believe and embrace the life which Jesus taught, the life that which leads everyone who lives according to his commandments to friendship with God and fellowship with him. Okay, so the Savior's uh, death here has a, has a twofold, you know, aspect to it. As an example, you know, for us to live by and him recapitulating anything and also as a trophy of his victory over the devil. All right. Now, problems that you come across with uh, this understanding of the recapitulation view of the atonement. Um, there's also a man by the name of... Uh, 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 Methodius. Um, he had just a kind of a weakened view of the recapitulation view, but he was another one who held to it. I'm just going to kind of skip over him real quick. Problem that you have with this recapitulation view of the atonement. And I know uh, I, probably some of you are thinking of, of what I just read with what Origen said. The understanding of what Jesus is, is not articulated yet. Okay. He's, he's son of God, but you know, what exactly is that? We'll get into a little bit of Christology um, later on, and and we'll discuss the different views of what it means that Jesus was both God and man, uh, and and how people were thinking of it, because that's kind of playing in here a little bit. But mostly, we want to look at this understanding of this redemptive aspect of it. If Jesus's whole purpose was to come and to live the perfect perfect life that we didn't live, then there would have been no point to the cross. He could have just went and lived and died a natural, ripe old age. Wouldn't have mattered. All he had to do was die because there was no point to it. He just had to live the perfect life. The problem with the ransom, the Satan view that we have is that God doesn't owe Satan anything. He has nothing. Satan is not the, the person or the, the Satan is not the one who's offended. Satan is not the one who has control. Satan is not the one whom the right has to be made. We fell out of favor with God. We fell out of fellowship with God. Restoration had to occur vertically between us and God. And Christ is the mediator. Nothing had to be paid to Satan. Satan does not have that power. So that's where these two things got kind of separated. Now, why... Is there so much emphasis on this mental understanding, on this cognitive ability, on this, this Gnostic understanding? Why is that so prevalent in this the aspect of we have to learn from Christ and him being a great teacher and doing all this stuff? And in the beginning of this podcast, I talked about how 
your outside environment is going to influence a lot of this. Look at, look at what they were going through at the time. Look at what they saw. Okay. They were coming uh, as Christians. They were seeing what the Jews were doing. Okay. The Jews had a very physical, bloody sacrifice. St- uh, you know, that was uh, atonement that was done at the temple. Okay. Was that pleasing to God? That became the question. Well, 70 AD, the temple was completely destroyed. Okay. Jesus predicted that. Uh, you know, he said, before this generation passes away, this temple will be, you know, destroyed. And, and you know, you'll see the son of man coming on the clouds in judgment. And like, that's what, you know, in, indicating that, you know, God was going to destroy the temple. Um, they got mad at him for that. I mean, that's, that was at his trial. That was during the passion before they delivered him up to, uh, to the Romans. Um, he did these things. And so they're looking at this and they watch the temple be destroyed by the Romans. There is no more sacrifice for the Jews. They don't have it. The Jews then where the Sadducees were very tied into the temple. The Pharisees took prominence in, in the teaching and things started changing a little bit. They had no place to sacrifice anymore. If they kind of morphed into more, you know, prayer and you know, supplication, those sort of things, but you didn't have a physical sacrifice going on. So the physicality of the sacrifice is now gone. What do the Christians have? Well, they have an unbloody sacrifice of the Eucharist of bread and wine. So the bloody sacrifice is done away with the physical. You are now feeding as some Christians would say today, spiritually on the body and blood of Christ, whenever you're partaking of the Eucharist, not all believe that, but some do. And when they're looking at this and they're, and they're saying, look at what's happened to the Jews because they rejected God. Their temple was completely destroyed. All right. The great diaspora happened. They, they got spread out. And then, um, later on in like uh, the one thirties, then, you know, they were finally expelled from Rome and weren't allowed back. They had no, from the Roman empire, they had no land. Not until, was 1948, 1949, 46, somewhere in the 1940s, I believe. And the Christians were looking at this going, these people are cursed by God. They have no sacrifice because they denied God. So the sacrifice is no longer physical. It's spiritual. So it's not difficult to see the leap from that being that everything is, is spiritual in this sense, is cognitive in this sense, especially when you have this background, this philosophy of this worldview going around of the Gnostics and of the Stoics and everything physical is bad. Everything spiritual is good. Spiritual is what we need to get to. Um, you know, the knowledge, the, the gathering of knowledge, that's what, you know, is, is saving us. That's what's important. All this is, you know, kind of coming together. So now this, This also, and this is my hypothesis here. This is my kind of thoughts on one of the reasons why this type of Christianity and well, this type of, I don't want to say this type of Christianity. It sounds bad. This type of understanding of the atonement may have gained a little bit more foothold than perhaps a, a, a different understanding of, you know, justification, those sort of things. First off, I think it's much more palatable for the people of the time. It's easier for them to grasp. It makes more sense. The stuff that's going around them, it makes a lot more sense. Okay. Um, that'd be number one. Number two is if you're really railing against this, all right, 
you're already being persecuted at this time. Okay, there are Christian persecutions that are going on. I mean, Nero persecuted the church in uh, 67 AD, Domitian in 81, Trajan in 108, and it continued on for 30 years, even through Adrian until he died. And then it was you know, picked back up again from uh, Antonitis. Uh, in 162 AD. So you had all these periods of persecution that are going on. So if you're standing up and saying something so radically different than what is going on in, 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 in church and making yourself stand out even more, then you're going to be persecuted. And I don't, and when I say persecution, I mean persecution. I mean that, you know, when you look in these catacombs, the heads are not connected to these bodies. The bones of some of these people are charred. Their clavicle bones are broken. Their backs are broken. Their shoulders are broken. This is hardcore persecution. This is what happens to you if you are identified as a Christian. At first, you were seen as just another Jew. Okay, especially if you were Jewish and you were a Jewish Christian, because how different did you look from other Jews? In, in your practice, in, in your behavior, the Romans would look at you and say, okay, you believe that there's only one God, so do the Jews. You worship on one day of the week, so do the Jews. You have rituals, so do the Jews. You have sacrifices, so do the Jews. How are you any different than any other Jew? You're just another version of Judaism. That's all you are. That's all we see. But once the destruction of the temple happened, it became pretty obvious who was different. And that the Gentiles also picked up on this. Um, Nero blamed the Christians for the, the fire in Rome and that persecution started and he was, did some pretty terrible things, dipping people in tar, tying them up to, to stakes and letting them bake out in the sun all day while he threw parties. And then at night so that his guests could see to leave, they lit the Christians on fire. And so, you know, they would just be human torches, uh, burning up as people were walking through and leaving. Crucifixions all over the place, of course. Um, you had all of these terrible things going on. A lot of these men that I named, um, they all died horrible deaths. It's not like they were sitting around as professors or as theologians in ivory towers. They weren't sitting in college classrooms. They weren't sitting in, you know, all these great lecture halls and all these great places and, you know, saying, oh, yes, yes, we are. Well, I think that, you know, the recapitulation view of the atonement actually means this. No, you had none of that. They were persecuted. They were hunted down. They, they did not want to die. They wanted to keep proclaiming, you know, the, the gospel of Christ. They wanted to keep going. They, they would hide. They would go out. They knew that if they died, like, you know, they, they were going to be with Christ, that that wasn't the thing. But humanity is what it is, you know? I mean, dying for Christ, it's, and it's not like they didn't know it was happening, okay? I mean, they learned from Peter and Paul, okay? Peter was crucified upside down publicly, all right. Paul was decapitated. The apostles, there was only one of them that died a natural death. And that was St. John at an old age. And while these things were going on, he was boiled in oil and he didn't die. And it freaked out the emperor. He had him exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Okay. These people saw these things happening. All right. And they still 
would not deny Christ. Polycarp, the disciple of John, who, you know, knew John when he was born alive, watched all these other disciples, you know, of Christ signing in blood their testimony, saying that these guys were saying, no, we saw this stuff. We know this to be true. We, and, and we're not going to deny it, all of them. I mean, you might find one person that dies for a lie. You're not going to find, you're not going to find a dozen people that die for a lie, something they know to be a lie. You're going to have someone that's going to say it's not true. And then you have their disciples that watch this happen. Polycarp's taken to the Colosseum. You read his letters and what he says uh, to, to people when he's on the way, when he's on the boat, on the, on the way to be fed to the lions. And he says, you know, I've heard that if you don't move, the lions won't attack you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to charge them in hopes that they attack me and they completely consume all of me so that there won't be any mess for anyone to clean up. He was 86 and they were saying, all you have to do is deny Christ. And he's like, I've lived 86 years and Christ has done nothing to me. He hasn't harmed me. Why would I deny him? And he was burned alive. They had different ways of burning people, different ways of killing people. His remains, they didn't want his, his, his followers to gather them up and give them a proper burial. They had to sneak in and do that. Illegal. But they did. They put their lives at risk. So being a Christian put your life at risk. When you got baptized, it, cleans, it, it cleaned you up. People were dirty back then. I mean, they didn't have showers. They didn't have all that stuff. You, if you cleansed yourself in the middle of the day at some point, they knew it was a very visible thing. Something happened. You could be killed for that, becoming a Christian, being baptized. All of these men, Justin Martyr was another one, even, even you know, Justin Martyr in his, in his beliefs, um, you know, he was captured with six other people. He was tortured and then, then killed gruesomely. Uh, Eusebius's church history, we've, we find a lot of, of the, the descriptions of what happened to these people. None of these people died an easy death. That matters. That says something. Says that they actually believe this. They knew it to be true. They knew it to be true, not only because of what was written, but they knew it to be true because of the blood testimony that was given by their teachers, by, by the disciples, by the disciples of the disciples who knew them and watched these things happen to them. They had nothing to lose. Everything to gain, nothing to lose, except their lives. And that's a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying thing to be put in that position. But they did. In the next theology pit, we're going to be kind of continuing on in this understanding of salvation and, and what it means and, and you know, how this applies. And I think what we can take from this today, from this theology pit, is that Christ's redemption for us is very physical. It's, it's physical in the sense of what we are, body and soul, body, mind, and soul, however you want to understand it, us, us totally. What Christ did had to be done totally. Because if Christ's sacrifice, if his blood was the only thing that was needed, if his sacrifice was the only thing that was needed, well, then he could have died as a baby. And, and that would have been fine. But for some reason, he had to 
live this perfect life. He had to be the thing that we were not to become sin on our behalf. So this part of our understanding of salvation comes from these men. And this is the predominant view for quite a while in the Christian church. It's not until we get into, I believe, the 11th or 12th century when we start getting these more modern understandings that we would be easier to relate to, um, satisfaction view of the atonement, uh, the governmental view of the atonement, those sort of things. And we'll be talking about that, but there's such a long time period in between that. And I think that we need to address what was going on in that time period to bridge why this understanding of salvation had this sort of change, had this shift. But hopefully you could see all the nuggets and all the seeds of these early Christian fathers on this topic. And because of this, we have what we believe today. And I want us to hold to this understanding that, you know, like I said before, perfect doctrine is not necessary for salvation, but it is necessary for the health of the church. And it's all about the work of Christ. And it's all about what God says about us. That's the doctrine of justification. This is sanctification that we're looking at, what, what we're doing when we're moving. And I hope that this has been informative in our journey here on understanding how the churches today have this understanding. And you can kind of see where it's originating from and how it's uh, changing over time. So if you haven't already, please visit samsonstick.com. Uh, donations are always appreciated. Um, again, if you want to send me an email, my information is samson at samsonstick.com. It's S-A-M-S-O-N at S-A-M-S-O-N-S-T-I-C-K.com. Again, there's no P in my name. I don't like it. You don't like it in your pool. I don't like it in my name. So just uh, kind of remember that. Thank you very much for joining me on this, uh, this time in the theology pit. I understand this one's gone way over an hour. Uh, but I think that it was necessary to get everything in that we did. Uh, thanks for sticking with me. Thanks for listening. Um, tune into more of the, um, the pit of conception, and I'll probably be, probably be going through a few more of these things, maybe uh, touch on the persecutions and what was going on at the time throughout the week. Um, again, thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time. And um, I'm going to close down this edition of The Theology Pit. 